Hey, have you heard of someone named Ansem? I am Sam? Last week, I got in the habit of browsing the Unpopular Opinion subreddit. Oh boy. And, now I know this is gonna shock you when I say this, but uh, a lot of these opinions, not that unpopular. <laughs> so, so well, we now, now we need examples of not- Oh. What, 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 un, what, cold, it's, I think that like an unpopular Opinions really popular. I would describe that as a cold take, right? That's what it feels like to me. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, that yeah. that should be the actual name of these, of this whole subreddit. Just because, uh, yeah, these are not particularly earth shattering. So, right off cold the bat, takes. <laughs> we've got and it's got twelve awards. Um, maybe I'm misreading this, but the the. The title is The Lack of Split Screen Slash Couch Co-op Games That Exist Anymore is Absolutely Absurd. Mm. Mm. That's that's a real spicy take right there. I've never heard anyone complain about that. <laughs> I was about to say that's that's it's a kind of justified, kind of not, but then I realized that it's supposed to be unpopular opinions, and yeah. the answer is no. Many people have had that opinion, so they're 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 not alone yeah the very first comment is this is a very popular opinion for anyone old enough to remember couch co-op games like <laughs> it would be unpopular if you said i prefer online to couch co-op except even then it's like eh i don't know i prefer my gaming to be done with strangers from across the internet another person next to me oh i wouldn't think of it yeah. Uh, so that's joined by the likes of not wanting kids should be normalized, which eh, <laughs> I'll give that one a little more credit, especially because it looks like it's it's a woman writing it. So I'm sure that's a whole different perspective. Exactly. But I was like, about to say the, the pressure for a woman to have kids is. Yeah. As, as two, as, as, as two, a big boy. Mm -hmm. we don't understand that. I mean, I think it depends, but. As the woman is the person who carries the child, I think yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I'm like, your oven's empty. When you when you gonna fill it up, madam? When are you gonna when are you gonna put some pizza in the oven? Oh, I did Christopher Walken and for like just pure by pure instinct, and then it devolved horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Stop making us log into everything. Oh yeah, because people uh, love that. Uh. <laughs> Uh, I think this one actually did break my brain. Oh uh, yeah, like no, no one's, no one's ever complained about that. No one's ever made this observation that having to make an account for everything is super annoying and tedious. You're, <laughs> you're really making headlines with that statement. Mm -hmm. New York Times, right there. <laughs> what are you doing? Go to Reddit. Uh, cold weather, cold weather is better than hot weather. Mm. That's not, like, a direct 50-50 split. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was about to say, I don't think it's... I don't think it's... Depending on what side you're on, I feel like it's always a... a t I guess it's a tense one! Boy, oh boy! 
Yeah, I feel like that one is based entirely on where you grew up. <laughs> so if you grew up with snow, you probably like snow better. If you grew up with a lot of sun, you probably like the sun better. See, I would I would think the opposite way. Like I grew up in a very sunny place, and I, to be fair, as I think about mm. it for more than two seconds, when it's snowing, I say I hate the snow. When it's and when it's hot out, I I say I hate it. That it's hot out. So I'm neither <laughs> oh. and then finally insulting someone's music taste is so weird who's doing that like <laughs> <laughs> unless you're just you know associating with just complete jerks like none of these opinions are like anything to sneeze at <laughs> the only in terms of the music one the only thing i personally don't like country I think I'll tolerate all other other genres. Oh, me neither. At least, yeah, so yeah, we're in the same boat. But I wouldn't be like <laughs> country, sir, in this day and age. Yeah, um, like, <laughs> like who cares? Like, I feel like, like I feel like maybe ten years ago, some of these would be like, oh, that's a dangerous line of thinking, sir or madam. But like now, it's like we we have bigger issues. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that was that was a wash. So short story, uh, Reddit's a waste of time. Don't ever go there. Don't <laughs> d- don't ever go on any social media. Really, just throw your phone in the lake. <laughs> that that sounds about right. Unless that's what you're listening to this podcast on, in which case, <laughs> keep it very safe. Maybe you're listening to uh, Kingdom Hearts by Heart from underwater because you truly want to embrace the Atlantic feel. Yeah. And you know what? You do you, buddy. Go on. <laughs> But, yes, with that in mind, welcome to Kingdom Hearts by Heart, episode 19, mm-hmm. where we're very close to the end, and today we are going to be having a bit of a, a book club, if you will, where we review the Ansem Reports, which is uh, one of my more, you know, appreciated parts of any Kingdom Hearts uh, just going in and reading up on the lo- on all the lore, uh, so that'll be a good time. But before we get into that, uh, you know, we, we have some some steps to to make on our gummy wrap this 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 fine summer morning. So yeah, why don't we why don't we why don't we why don't we start with the game corner? More than meets the eye. So what have you been playing this week? I realized as we go into game corner that. It's not it's not the same as last week, but I did the same thing of revisiting some old games. So nice. and by old games I mean like three mostly 3DS games. Mm-hmm. It's not games that are really old. The new things that I've played are I played Final Fantasy, Fiat Rhythm, Curtain Call, again, because I love mm. the Fiat Rhythm games. And yep. it reminded me that hey, you haven't played Melody of Memory yet, and I said, Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't. <laughs> And then I played a little bit of Fire Emblem Fates. So, yeah, Ooh. Fiat Rhythm. Isn't that the bad one? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll get to that in a second. Don't, don't you worry. Mm. I'll, I'll keep it okay. brief. But, uh, yeah. Fiat Rhythm is just... The, they're, there's only two of them. So there's Fiat Rhythm, and then Fiat Rhythm, Curtain Call, and they're just Final Fantasy Rhythm games on the 3DS. I love both of them. I've put over 60 hours into both games. Oh, yeah. Because... I love rhythm games, and I love Final Fantasy, so here we are, and a reason I was very excited for Melody of Memory, but also I <laughs> have been too busy to touch Melody of mm. Memory. I mean, I like Fiat Rhythm, 
I can I can say that much. There's not again. It's not, there's not much to it. The I would say the first one is pretty. It's pretty small compared to two, or it's a good size on its own, but two really expanded. Like I think one. Hmm. And I could be wrong. It's mostly the numbered titles, and they're very popular oh, tracks. Okay. But yeah, they pull from a selection of like battle music, field music, and then. I guess those are the three stages. Like, there's battle stages where you have you're, you have a party of four characters, and the notes come at you know in mm-hmm. each row, and of course you have to hit them. There's like you know swipes and touches and holds because it's a touchscreen, obviously. Uh, there's yep. field stages where you know it's usually it's usually a uh, field music, and those ones are more of a, like hold, like you have to touch and hold, but the uh, the icon like moves around a lot so it's usually more i must say it's, it's more calm but also less calm than mm-hmm. uh, the battle ones to a degree and then they had a lot in the original one there's like there's like a lot of movies so literally like yep. a cut will play in the background and there's just like it the cursor travels along a certain path almost yeah. like, it gives me it gives me vibes from the uh seven remake dancing scene of just like I'm watching something, and then all of a sudden it's like, "Hey, kid, here's some motions you gotta do really quickly." <laughs> yeah, Melody of Memory has that for sure. Oh, uh, oh god. <sighs> but I too expanded a lot, and they're both good games. I love them. My other game I'll briefly touch upon is Fire Emblem Fates, which is, to my knowledge, you don't play Fire Emblem, correct? Nope. But you still know that Fates is the bad one. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the one that Corrin hails from, correct? Correct. Corrin from, mm. Corrin from Super Smash Brothers, who technically appeared in Super yes. Smash Brothers before their own game came out. Oh. It's very much a case of the character was added kind of to advertise the game just because the release was so close to when the game actually mm. came out. Where it's mm-hmm. like, this was like, this was just like, you know, a marketing thing, basically. Because, yeah, I don't think yeah. most people actually like Corrin as a character. So now they just kind of stick out like, oh, hi. <laughs> Didn't age well mm-hmm. as a character, no, Joe. You're, you're 100% correct. Whereas, like, you know, a Byleth, which, you know, they came out pretty close. Although they came out after Fire Emblem Three Houses. But I, I feel like yeah. people actually like Byleth. Mm-hmm. But tell us yeah. about Fates. <laughs> So, okay, so I was right. It came out in Japan in summer 2015. So Japan had a lot of time to enjoy Fates, and then we got it the the following February. So, jeez, mm-hmm. yeah, understandable. But in the repertoire of, like, Fire of Lords, I say that as someone who loves Marth, and Marth is, Marth is as, like, white bread as you can get. Corrin yep. is still somehow worse than that. Corrin, well, I, sh- I should explain Fates very quickly, too. It's a very... Pokemon Red versus Pokemon Blue scenario yep. that they took with Fate. So Birthright is very much like Awakening was, where you can kind of move around the world map as much as you want. You can do as many side quests as you want, sort of level your characters and get resources and things like that. Whereas mm. Conquest is more of like the traditional Fire Emblem of like it you go from map to map to map to map. There's no there's no kind of like uh, fluff really so mm-hmm. you I, I say that as someone who i didn't finish conquest but i i finished birthright not conquest but conquest again older fire emblem so you have to manage your resources and manage your units very wisely because like 
as someone who first played Awakening, I was like, oh, I can just grind my units to level 20 and then take on a story mission and, you know, I'll basically be safe. I won't have too much trouble. And going from mm -hmm. that to Birthright, which is the same, they go to Conquest, and I'm like, oh, this is a whole different ballgame. And I have started to play some of the classic Fire Emblems after that, but it, it was definitely a, a tonal shift or like not very much like an, an eyes wide open moment for me. Mm -hmm. But in Fates, you are a noble who is kidnapped from their homeland. You realize, oh, I'm not from here. I'm from there. So birthright, you stay with your blood family. Conquest, you stay with your adopted family. Hmm. Okay. So the writing, the writing is not solid hmm. across the board. <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's a lot of peaks and valleys with Fates. Like there's some very fun, very like ooh moments, but hmm. then they're followed immediately by something very egregious so it's it is hard there's there, there's no really there's no good writing consistency when it comes to face unfortunately when it comes to storyline the characters i mean the characters are one of the shining spots of the game the, the there's a lot of characters because there's really three separate i guess two to three separate storylines so there's mm -hmm. a plethora of characters to love and fall in love with and also hate so Okay. You kind of get a. You, it's very like well, that's well. That is very obviously quantity over quality. Mm -hmm. uh, Fates definitely the redheaded stepchild. It's very funny because I'll I'll quickly tangent this before I hand it over to you. Is that Three Houses was the last Fire Emblem game we got, and the comparisons between that and Fates because again a game with branching pathways. People got yeah. very 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 nervous. I was I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But luckily for Three Houses, first half of the game is mostly the same. It's just like, oh, I'm with the Golden Deer, so I only have access to these units. Luckily, the first half is, they're all very similar, similar enough, obviously. And then mm -hmm. once you reach the second half of the game, that's when each one branches off into its own story. So there's a lot gotcha. of consistency, literally the opposite of Fates. There's actual consistency in the writing. Okay, nice. That's 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 way too much Fire Emblem talk for one day. So why don't you uh, why don't you tell me what you've been playing? Unless it's more Fire Emblem, then maybe I'll be scared. I have been continuing the PS2 throwback tour. Um, so I played through Slide Two, start to finish, and Slide Two, in my opinion, is a much better game than Slide One. So I can believe it. Yeah. So as I mentioned, very similar sort of structure between Sly and Jack as a series where the first the first games in each are pretty simple like level based um, much more straightforward platformers and then the second one shakes it up a little um, so whereas Jack 2 turned into like a GTA type thing Sly 2 uh, to a lesser extent it kind of goes open world but it's you have eight episodes I guess you could say and each mm -hmm. one takes place in a little hub world that's, you know, pretty small, but big enough to explore and whatnot. And then from there, everything's mission-based. So I just think it makes more sense for this style of game where, you know, you sneak in and you're planning heists and you're, you know, taking steps to, like, kind of infiltrate the enemy base and whatnot. So yeah, it's just more fun to play, in my opinion. I think so. Which, which was your first Sly game, actually? So, I didn't play Sly until the Sly Collection on okay. PS3. So, yeah, I just played them in order. Uh, so, Sly 1, 2, 3. Got you. 
Slide 2 has always stuck out as the best of the bunch to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you play as Sly still, but also you can play as Bentley the Turtle and Murray the Hippo. And they're okay. So Bentley, like, he has like a little arrow gun that you can put enemies to sleep with. He's got like yep. a little hacking mini game, which is kind of annoying, but kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then Murray's just like a brawler, so... A lot of his missions are just more combat focused, but then they'll use him for like off shoot stuff like vehicle sections. Mm-hmm. So like whenever you have to play as him, it's not as exciting. I, like, Ugh, I mean, I'd rather just be sly, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to like hail back to sly too. So I, I guess to, to answer my own question really too, I started with three and then the mm. collection came out and then I started from, you know, one, two, three. So I see. I kind of got a. I kind of. I kind of got a. I got a taste of what the series would become, and then I yeah. took it back. Now, y'all. But <laughs> as I think about, it, I do appreciate having the three different play styles, but it can be kind of jarring, especially when the game feels like it's built around Sly mostly. Yeah. Like I feel like sometimes Bentley and Murray can feel like a hindrance rather than a help. Yeah, for sure. Like whenever, whenever you're playing as them in like the actual overworld. As in, when you like, you have you have a base, and then you choose your character there, and then when you choose a character, you have to go to the mission starting point. But like, the world is just clearly designed for Sly because he has all of his little thief moves, where he can like jump and grab onto things and do his little like thief hop, where he like lands on like wires and literally like the little blue sparkles that Kevin's talking about. Where you can I can land yep. and walk on a wire, or I can like land on this very thin ledge, like. Is yes. explained in game is like you've got the heritage of the Cooper family in you. Exactly. So like the environments are built around his move set, whereas Murray and Bentley, they can just run and jump. Basically, there's no reason to play as them otherwise. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's fun, and in the worlds there are uh thirty clue bottles, which are super fun to find. Because, again, they really take advantage of Sly's moveset where they're hidden in all sorts of little hidey holes that usually only he can get to. But they're, mm-hmm. like, a super fun collectible. And then there's also, like, three treasures in each world where you pick them up and then you got to run them back to the safe house so you can sell them. So, like, it's just pretty good side content for, you know, a game about thieving and heists. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can also pickpocket the guards, like they'll have the little treasures, and then you can buy power-ups with all your gold. Oh, I love the pickpocketing so much. Yeah, it's good. So yeah, side 2, very fun. Especially the level design, it's just really good. Like, it's just fun to explore the different spaces. Mm-hmm. The last world in particular is really interesting. So this is one of the rare... Yeah, it's like this giant blimp with all these like different interconnected pieces, and it's just... A really cool sort of setting that I've never really seen before. So the game actually does a good job of ending on a strong note, unlike mm-hmm. a lot of the other games I've been playing recently. Although there is a terrible turret section once again toward the end. I'm like, why do games do this? <laughs> like, why do games force you into these on-rails turret sections when you're like playing a platformer? <laughs> like, unless I'm specifically playing a shooter, I don't want a turret section. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for. You sure about that? I'm 100% sure. <laughs> so yeah, I beat it, and it's it's actually, it's also got a really solid story. Uh, so like the character writing is pretty good for, you know, this little cartoony platformer. I 
think so, yeah. It ends on kind of like a bittersweet note where you're like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Sly 2, very good in my book. That's where that's where I'm at with Sly, but that's that's pretty much all I played this week. So, yeah, that's, that's it for Game Corner. Uh, but I have a little surprise. I, I actually have a Disney Corner this week. You look ass. Although, it should have been last week, because I totally forgot I watched this movie last week. <laughs> but, uh, I watched The Jungle Book. And The Jungle Book is pretty good, I have to say. Yes. Yeah, it came out around mid-60s or whatever, so same era as 101 Dalmatians. And for a lot of the reasons I liked that movie, I enjoyed uh, Jungle Book. So pretty straightforward story-wise. Got to get Mowgli back to the human vision, the human village, because <laughs> Khan is going to gobble him up. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just a little romp through the jungle. You meet a bunch of fun characters. And yeah, it's just a fun movie. So obviously everyone loves Baloo, that big old carefree bear. Bagheera is pretty good. He's a sassy cat. Ka is a fun villain. Uh, Hypno Snake. Yeah. And Shere Khan's a fun villain. He's like he's a sophisticated uh, British lad, and there's a scene with him interacting, talking to Ka, and that's a fun little scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I think it's still a good watch. It's got a few songs that are pretty good. Animations pretty solid. Most notably, obviously, the backgrounds, a lot of nice jungle scenery, mm-hmm. and also just the soundtrack, like, the main theme of, like, I don't know, some sort of, like, pipe. <laughs> but, like, as soon as you hear it, it just, like, totally takes you back to, like, ah, oh, it's nap time at daycare, so let's put on Jungle Book. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I, uh, you just gave me, you gave me flashbacks right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a fun one. And it was planned for Kingdom Hearts at one point. In fact, you can access uh, like a beta version of a room of it in BBS, Birth by Sleep, of King Louis' throne. So it was planned for that game at one point, but then it got oh. scrapped. I think it would make a really good world. You know, we have Deep Jungle, obviously, but it's not super jungly. So I'd be curious to see how they would actually interpret the jungle book. And I'm also curious how they would handle the transformations. Cause obviously Donald and Goofy could pass for jungle folk, but I have to wonder, would they keep Sora as is, or would they make him some sort of animal? If you change Sora, you'd then have to change Donald and Goofy as well, because that'd be exactly. weird if he's the other one who changed. <laughs> We're of the same mind right here. You either go in or you don't touch it. So exactly. Either go in as, <laughs> as in their regular cage get-ups, or you make them animals. But I think that's a... If you make them animals, I just... I lion, Insert Lion King vibes here. Yep, totally. But... Well, this, oh, oh, this would have been BBS. Wait, 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 wait. What... what it was planned for this game, right? Like, the original. Um, well, <laughs> I have some news on that later. Um, I'm sure it was considered for the original, but uh, okay. we know for a fact that it was in some form of development for Birth by Sleep. Gotcha. But then it got it got scrapped. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. I think the minute you said Jungle Book and Cage, I immediately... Oh, I, my mind jumps to uh, Pride Lands from Cage 2, but... This was before the Pride Lands. In fact, we know the Pride Lands were destroyed because Simba is a summon. So, mm-hmm. 
I feel like that could have worked, but then, yeah, that, even if it was before or after 2, like, how do you make Pride Land stand out at that point? If we lived in a universe where we got Jungle Book and KH1, I think. Yeah, like, they, you need to put some distance between them so people aren't as, you know, mm-hmm. people aren't thinking about Pride Lands as much. Yeah, I'd like to see it implemented at some point. Probably of, like, you know, Retro Disney, and I think this one would make the most sense of worlds that haven't been covered yet, so... But, yeah, while we're on the subject, let's let's get to the discussion proper. It's time to go over our Ansem reports. So, to get the Ansem reports, I mean, basically just, you know, do everything in the game. Usually you get them from bosses, um, and then if you go through the Hades Cup, I think you'll get the last few, but then, to get the last three, you have to... Conquer the unknown boss battle. So, uh, we saved this guy from our previous super boss discussion because we figured it would make sense to talk to him, talk about him uh, during the answer report discussion. And also, this is a final mix exclusive boss. So, you know, he's too cool to sit at the other super boss's table. You know, he likes to, <laughs> to be alone. So, we figured we'd kind of attach him to the answer report discussion here at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And yeah. What if idea is? So, right off the gate, you'll notice there's this big swirling vortex of darkness in the castle chapel in Hollow Bastion, and that'll clue you in that there's danger afoot. Once you enter said vortex, uh, you'll watch a pretty cool cutscene. So, for the longest time, naturally, because we didn't have Final Mix in the West, I only knew of this boss from, you know, gameplay videos, and I remember watching this cutscene for the first time and just totally being blown away because it just does a lot of interesting things that is unique for a cutscene in Kingdom Hearts 1. So, well, for starters, for a final mix cutscene, they actually go through the effort of adding voice lines, but they just pick up samples from pre-recorded lines that show up in other parts of the game and then just drop that in there. (laughs) Still, still cool, though. I still appreciate it. Oh, yeah, for sure. It works enough, but it is definitely awkward, especially because some of them are so distinct. You're like, well, that's just from this part of the game. Yeah. The most notable <laughs> is uh, Goofy's line. I insane you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is 100% from when uh, Sora and Sora's talking to Leon and Yuffie, and then in the, the other room, Aerith and Don Goof are learning yep. about the Heartless simultaneously. Yep. It's an interesting cutscene. So we have this mysterious figure in a dark cloak, and he like passes through Sora, which is really weird. And then when he does, you get this flash of a bunch of different lines. And then I, I was like pausing it and going through, and they're just all lines of dialogue that Sora's spoken throughout the game. So it's kind of like just retracing Sora's journey so far. And then, yeah, the actual unknown figure, he doesn't have a voice because he's so mysterious, but he does talk. You can kind of infer what his voice is like from the subtitles because they're all, like, gritty and shaky like a music video. (laughs) Yeah, what sticks out to me the most is I think this is the only cutscene in Kingdom Hearts 1 with, like, actual... Well, aside from Cloud and Sephiroth, which is also a final mix cutscene... But this one actually has fight choreography, and I think it's the only one with Sora actually pulling off some moves. Unknown goes to attack Sora with his giant laser bolts, and then Sora deflects it with the king, uh, the keyblade, like he's some yep. sort of Jedi. 
And it's just cool because, you know, it's like an in-game cutscene. So just, you get a sense of Sora's power growth over the course of the game where now he's able to pull off this really cool move where he can actually deflect his super powerful attack, which he does. And then he like repels it and then it crashes into the roof and then it causes all the rubble and debris to fall and it's like kind of in slow motion. So it just gives mm-hmm. a sense of like, oh, this is like really powerful and... You know, this is like next level battle, basically. Exactly. You don't really see that in the rest of the game, so it's just a, a visual treat for the eyes. True. I don't have some choice words for Sora. Yes. So unknown kind of tells him, "Hmm, you are you are incomplete. You are not whole, and I'd like to test you." So it's all very mysterious. It's all very foreboding. But basically, this guy's looking for a fight, and a fight is what he's found. <laughs> oh! So yeah, boss battle starts, and yeah, what do we what do we think of this guy? So it's it's funny because well, at this point in the series, like when Final Mix finally came out for us, we kind of knew everything, but didn't know everything at this point. So I would yep. go back. I'd go back in time and punch square enix in the face until they really until they release final mix before yep like kh2 or even chain of memories but unfortunately that is not the timeline that we live in but unknown i mean this is the first appearance of a black cloak right i mean gameplay wise yes yeah canonic canonically i guess uh, yeah like you the original us release the secret movie was another side another story which also had the old True. black cloaks but like yeah this is like the heart confirmed that like yes this is a thing that exists in this universe <laughs> i guess you could say mm-hmm. definitely daunting he reminds me of ansem seeker of darknesses like uh, i can't know what to call it but before he takes control of Riku's, before he has a body and he's just his a, ro- hooded we form just, yeah we just, we just we just a floating potato sack Totally. It's kind of those vibes because I mean it is a hood figure whose face you cannot see whatsoever. Yep. Like it's completely the silhouette or like the character model underneath the hood is like completely shadowed out. Like there's no way you can stick a flashlight in his face and be like, "Who are you?" Yep. So, no idea who this guy is. Or about him. Yeah. I mean he's he's unknown. <laughs> True. It's it's right there in the name. So I fought him at level ninety, which is probably over leveled. Because I didn't have too hard a time with him. Like, I, I, I didn't die. I, I fought him two times, and I didn't die either. And I was expecting it to be a lot harder, because I remember the very first time I fought him, I was at level 100, 100. And that was... I remember having a hard time with that. So I was expecting that to carry over to this playthrough. But no, I got to him pretty pretty decently. So how did, how did you fare, and what level did you face him? I think originally, originally like the first time we got 1.5, I I don't I couldn't tell you if it was an underleveled thing. I think it was I think I want to say it was just an underleveled thing. I remember fighting him a few times, being like, "Well, boy, oh boy, I'm gonna have to go grind and then come back." Mm-hmm. But he seemed very daunting at first for for reasons we literally just described. But yep. doable, at the very least. Not whenever I think of a fight that I kind of like. I, I love Syat. It's always set for, especially for KH1, it's always Sephiroth. Yeah, like Sephiroth is definitely harder than Unknown. He doesn't give you that sense of dread that Sephiroth does. So my, my first thought yeah. is not too bad, question mark, but also a shrug. 
Yeah. Uh, so for this playthrough, I think I was... I think for the bosses, I was... I was probably floating around 75 to 80. I know I ended mm -hmm. at 80. So. Okay. And Unknown, I think, was the last fight. I forget if I did Unknown before all of my... Yep. No, I did Unknown after all my grinding for, like, you know, Ultra Weapon and things like that. For all the synthesis materials. So, yeah, yep. this was... This, this had to be the last fight I really did in the game. So, I think I was level 80. Pretty... Well, everything's pretty easy when you have the most OP weapon in the game. But mm -hmm. Unknown didn't give me a whole lot of trouble where I was, like, crying every two seconds. Yeah. So, for me, I think the main difficulty comes in... Well, there's two things. But, in general, his attacks just come out way faster than a lot of other attacks and I feel like he was built more for Kingdom Hearts 2 than Kingdom Hearts 1 because <laughs> yeah a lot of his attacks are just hard to avoid so he's got like the laser spam which you can dodge roll but they it does come out really quick and then same with like the giant um I guess energy bombs, you could say, where like he sends them out and then they explode as an AOE effect. Yeah. Those can definitely hit you if you're not already on the move. So like in general, you're probably gonna get hit a lot during this fight. Yes. And then the main attack is just his like ultra combo where he just throws out like twenty hits and like the super choreograph choreographed like lightsaber uh flurry, basically, where Lightsaber hands, baby! <laughs> yeah, like you can block it, but, like, he just keeps going. So I feel like eventually you will get hit. So for me, I think the best way to handle that is just to have counterattack and just keep, you know, counterattacking him. <laughs> and then eventually you'll get some hints in once he's done with the animation. But, like, if you don't have counterattack, then, yeah. yeah, that attack is hard to deal with. <laughs> yeah. But, like, yeah, all of his attacks, they do have ways to either block or just avoid them. So, yeah, he really wasn't as bad as I thought he would be. <laughs> mm. But the main thing, of course, that's super annoying is his command lock. Yes, and I literally wrote our notes, because this is also on point for our Ansem episode. Uh, mm. Welcome to Ansem & Co., where we sell Ansem and Ansem-related products. Uh, I literally wrote, oh, how Ansem of you, because uh, the Ansem's guardian does something very similar, where he messes with our command menu. This one is even more egregious, though, unfortunately. Yeah, this one's way worse, because you'll just straight up die if you're not careful. <laughs> yes. So, while you're under the effect, you're just steadily losing HP anyway. But all your commands get changed to shock, except for one will be release. Naturally, that's the one yep. you want. But if you hit shock, you'll get hit for, like, a really good chunk of HP. <laughs> exactly. I'll say it. I'm not ashamed. I just cheese it with the pause the pause menu. <laughs> Kevin! How? Yeah, because it goes way too you? fast for it to be reliable otherwise. Do don't worry. Everyone else does the same thing, I realized. I looked into this because I was like, I got to know. Everyone does the same. I'm like, I'm just going to keep pausing the game until release hovers over where my cursor is and screw it. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so we're not we're not alone. We're not alone anymore. Yeah. Kingdom Hearts does this a few times where it'll like mix up your commands. And I, every time I'll use like pause buffering. Cause I'm like, I'm, this isn't what I'm here for. <laughs> it happens uh, here. It happens with Ansem. 
I feel like there's no, another time I can't remember right now as well. And Luxord's fights in Kingdom Hearts 2, and I would uh, imagine Kingdom Hearts 3, oh, it comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, other than that, I think his main attack... Well, he has the, like, force field laser wall, which... Yeah. Which, if you're not too careful... Yeah, like, if you're not... As long as you're not super close to him, shouldn't be a problem. Just watch out for his follow-up attack. Exactly, that's what I was going to point out. So if yeah. you're super close and you're careful, because that, that that force field, the wall, will bonk you in the face, and then when you're trying to open your eyes, he's like, lightsabers! And he'll, you know, he'll dance right in front of you. And it's yeah. a dance that hurts, so no. But yeah, mm-hmm. if you get hit with the that, if you get hit with the wall, unfortunately, like, the entire lightsaber combo, you just get, I'll say he goes infinite, but not really, but uh, you yeah. just gotta be very, very careful, because he will be like, now's my time to shine. Yep, and then, yeah, I think his only other attack is his desperation move, which is when he just shoots lasers everywhere and they kind of rotate around him. Hamster ball mode. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And it looks super flashy and scary, but I found just super gliding away does a decent enough job. Like, you'll you'll still probably get hit a few times because the lasers have a pretty good range, but it's it's not, like, panic mode. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I would always just basically try to run behind him. It mm. doesn't work. It's not like a not like a surefire strategy the audience should be using, just like my personal one of like, I just try to not be in front of him. I feel like he aims mostly, if not completely, like the 180 degrees in front of him. Sometimes I think it does behind him, but I feel like if, as long as I try to c- circle around him, yeah. it, I tend to come out scot-free. So. Yeah, I'm sure there's a more, you know, legit strat. I don't worry about it too much. Exactly, yeah, and I mean after like hamster roll mode, his uh his uh ethereal blades, the lazy beams do get uh stronger, but yes, not too much, not to the point where like you have to avoid every single one, but like mm-hmm. just be careful, be a good boy, use arrow, dodge when you can. Yeah, like with most of the fights we've been advising on, just you know play a little more defensive, but. Yeah, he's really not nearly as bad as I I was expecting. Mm-hmm. But one other cool thing about this fight is the music track that plays is a real slap. Another Final Mix original piece. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you'll beat him, and then he parts with some some more very vague warnings of <laughs> hmm, we will meet again and what is it he says at the very end i think it's uh i am but a mere shell correct that's what he yeah. says mm, what, what could this mean wink wink nudge nudge oh, how how naive we were um but yeah once you beat him you'll get ansem reports 11 12 and 13 uh he only gives you 13 oh really Yes, 12 you get from Sephiroth, and 11 you get from beating up Kurt. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So literally the last three are all Super Boss exclusives, though, yes. Ah, okay. My bad. So, yeah, just reading through these as a kid, literally the meme of the the small boy standing in front of the TV, thinking very deeply with his arms crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Me reading the Ansem reports. But yeah, it like blew my mind, like because it like really goes in depth of like the in-game lore and like mechanics of like what Heartless and Darkness and Hearts are and how they all interplay with each other. And it's very like methodical and good stuff. Yeah. Let's just go in order and start off with number one. Yeah. 
So I just kind of took note of what stood out to me of each one. Some of them are more interesting than others. Yeah, for this first one, mainly what I took away is just the tone of voice of who's writing it is very much distinct from what we've seen of Ansem, Seeker of Darkness. So it sounds very much like a, a benevolent ruler, and he's kind of has a proper, dignified way of speaking. And, you know, he kind of sounds like a chill guy. Sounds like he's just worried about his people, and he just wants to do the right thing. But, um... He says that he's afraid of the world falling to darkness, and then he claims that he's seen hearts swallowed by darkness many times. And I have to wonder what exactly he's referring to, and if he's just being metaphorical. Like, heartless haven't been a thing ever, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funky, because when we play KH1, it's, I think probably this probably comes from just playing it as a child, it sounds like the Heartless were like these beings that always stir yep. in the darkness. And uh, I guess to some point, like, we don't know how old the Realm of Darkness has... I, I would assume that the Realm of Darkness has existed for as long as the Realm of Light has. Oh, for sure. But I, th I think it, I would say, based on events that happen in this game and games we're going to cover, obviously, in the future... That there, at some point there's a crossover. The Heartless are become interested in our world and there is, or are yeah. events that kind of are hinted to in the Ansem reports. But yeah, I think there's like, you know, we start to encounter the Heartless as real people. Yeah, this is the first time Heartless appear in the Realm of Light, like on a large scale. So like before this, most people would have no idea what a Heartless is. So yeah, I'm wondering like, is he literally talking about he's seen people you know, succumb to the darkness and become heartless? Or is he just saying, like, I've seen people be jerks, basically? Again, a metaphorical darkness. Like, I've seen people give in to their selfish impulses, I guess, if True. you will. It could be either. I feel like both are viable. I lean more into the heartless route than the meanie route. But I think both both fill the gap that we're looking for. Both, like, fill, like, this yeah. puzzle piece that, that could fit. Well, if it is literal... Then what we know of who's writing this, like, we know that they wouldn't have seen that. <laughs> uh, it gets so murky. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are saying, like, earlier, like, you know, this is the first time we'll see Heartless on a large scale, but maybe they, sometimes we see them on a little, little bit in a tiny scale. So, like... <sighs> yeah, it just depends on what Ansem, who we know wrote this, what he remembers. <laughs> Which gets very foggy. Well, let's, let's 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 move on. Let's let's not dwell on it too much. <laughs> so, Anson report number two uh, is when he starts actively experimenting, and he just goes full on Resident Evil scientist at this point. <laughs> and he mentions, "Oh yeah, I've confined the ones who's you know who've lost their hearts to the bottom of the castle. It's fine. Don't worry about it. They were in prison against their will. It's whatever. It's for the good of mankind." Oh, boy. But he he refers to them as those who completely lost their hearts. So, again, is is he, like, are they actual heartless at this point? Or are they, like, something, like, in between where, like, they still resemble people, but, you know, they've kind of lost their mind? Because if they were heartless, it seems like he should say they've, they've turned into these shadowy creatures, which he does yeah. in, you know, the next few reports. Mm -hmm. It kind of sounds like 
they still look like people from the way he's describing it. And then he Maybe. just threw them into yeah. prison cells, which if that's the thing, boy, howdy, is that a whole other layer? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What was in the waterway before there was water? Who knows? And I'll, well, yeah, cause he says the experiments, the, the experiments had their hearts collapsed. I could find the bottom of the castle Yep. Sometime later, I went below and was greeted by a strange sight. Creatures that seemed born of darkness. Mm-hmm. Are these the are these the people who lost their hearts but twisted? Or are literally, the, right. did these creatures show up because they sensed these heartless people yeah. downstairs? And we're like, ooh, party? That would suggest he didn't see the shadowy creatures until after he dragged all the bodies down, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's kind of confusing. But in general... It just paints this really, like, sinister picture of, you know... Especially, like you just mentioned, like, imagining, like, all this taking place in the waterway of the castle. Like, just these, like, fiendish experiments where there's all these, like, monsters running around below the castle. And, yeah, it's just... Very unethical. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Ansem Report number three. Uh, The main thing that stood out to me is Ansem... Is the one who gave the Heartless their name. Those who are without hearts, or whatever he says. I think I shall name them the Heartless. And he also notes that they are multiplying rapidly. So it's it's kind of like uh, the SpongeBob where he um, gets the Mermaid Man's belt with the shrink ray. And he just ends up with the entire town in his jar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> kind of what I'm imagining where like by the end of it there's no one actually left in the town of Hollow Bastion, because they've all just been experimented on. He's like, oh, geez, I may have gone a little too far in a few places here. (laughs) (laughs) Even he doesn't really know what the hell's going on. At this point, it is very much an experiment. I'm about to say, an experiment where your experiment fails and you leave it to the side, and all of a sudden it becomes exactly what you wanted, but more. Yeah, so he reiterates all that in Answer Report 4. Where, yeah, he kind of lays it out as heartless take hearts. They are born from those who have lost their hearts, thrive on hearts seized from others. Hearts taken by heartless become heartless themselves. So mm-hmm. then later he writes, though I lack proof, I am confident in this hypothesis. Like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's how the scientific method works. <laughs> and then he asks... It's just occurred to me, could they be the darkness in people's hearts? So, like, there's just all these questions. Basically, is a heartless a heart that has succumbed to darkness? Or is a heartless the person who loses their hearts? So the person minus their hearts, but then the darkness takes over the person, as in they succumb to the darkness. Or is it just the darkness of the heart extracted, so neither the person nor the heart, but just the darkness that comes from the heart? <laughs> It's probably all of the above. Yeah, I thought I had my head wrapped around all this, and I thought I knew, okay, a heartless is this, but going over these reports again, I'm like, well, now I don't know. And Ansem doesn't know either. We never truly knew. We could never understand the inner machinations of Nomura. Mm-hmm. From what we know of Kingdom Hearts 2 specifically, I think a heartless is a heart that is overcome by darkness. So, like, the heart is, like, the core, essentially. And then they're, like, wrapped in a darkness shell, which is, like, the actual body of the heartless. Because we know that the body isn't doesn't become a heartless, which we'll get into later in the ports. And then I always interpreted... Well, let's keep reading. But I think the actual darkness itself of the heart 
is something else, but we'll we'll get into that in a few reports. So let us let us continue. Mm-hmm. So answer report five. So he stumbles upon Hollow Bastion's keyhole, but it begs the question yeah. of from you know the flashback with Riku and Sora and the Destiny Islands keyhole. It kind of implied that. Only certain people can see keyholes because it didn't appear when it was Sora and Riku, but then when it was just Riku, he saw it. So mm-hmm. I kind of think that only certain people can see keyholes. It appeared before Ansem, the Hollow Bastion keyhole, and then he was not only did it appear to him, but he was even able to go as far as to open it, um, and he was able to see the world's core from there. So that would suggest that Ansem is a very special boy. Which, as I'm thinking about it, we'll learn later in the series that that kind of holds true. That if you can if Sally Mae just can't walk in and be like, oh, look at the keyhole to the world's heart. Yep. Like, you have to have some sort of power or significance and uh, this Ansem got that in spades. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so he also mentioned that after opening the door, there was a meteor shower, and he hypothesizes there's a connection between him opening the door and the meteor shower. So we know that means the meteor shower signifies that the walls between the worlds are officially shattered, which that seems like a really flawed security system on the world's part, where Mm -hmm. if you just open one world's door to its heart, everything else is like, oh, we just can't, we can't hold it up anymore. Just all of our worlds are shattered (laughs) or all of our (laughs) walls are shattered. Like what? It's just like a chain reaction where if one falls, they all fall. (laughs) So, one, the image in my head of Ansem doing this is opening, it's very Coraline of opening the, oh, the yeah. hatch door to a brick wall and being like, what? What's going on? And he closes it, turns around, there's like 50 shadows standing behind him, and he's like, oh no. But, so, does opening this, does this knock down just Hollow Bastion's walls? Does it knock down everybody's walls? I think it knocks down everybody's walls, hmm. as we'll learn in a few reports. And oh, yeah, yes, I, I think... Yeah, and I think because this triggered, we'll just say it, the Heartless Invasion, for lack of a better term, because Hollow Bastion's door specifically is what triggered the the borders to fall. I think that's why the final keyhole is so significant in Hollow Bastion, because it's basically the source of all the darkness, kind of. So I think that's why that one was so powerful and important and had all the darkness coming from it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in Answer Report 6, the only thing I really noted is he kind of elaborates on what he saw behind the door, and he describes it as just a giant massive energy, which we know is the heart of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you were just kind of describing it, and I think of all of the, you know, sort of little plot points that have been alluded to, and, like, whether Answer Reports or whatever side content... I just love to see this as a cutscene of, like, what actually happened here and, like, what did he see? Because, like, there's so many ways you can interpret it. Like, is it just this, like, empty void of just this giant ball of light is how I'm imagining the heart of a world? I just love to see, imagine, like, see what that's supposed to look like. Because, like, this is much later, but, like, um, and point two... Fragmentary Passage. Yeah, like, we get cutscenes of, like, things that we never saw, but, like we know happened so it's just kind of cool to like see like how they actually played out so like i'd I'd love to see in the future some sort of flashback to this and yeah in general i really wish that 
keyholes would come back into the story because they really they're not relevant after kingdom hearts one like no one ever mentions them or brings them up or even like the whole thread of like the heart of the world like i don't think anyone ever mentions that again after this (laughs) yeah it's very much a kh it's a kh one and done baby yeah exactly how we've kind of been mentioning the entire yep length of kh1 that like it has its own ideas that are very segmented and yep. literally foreign to the rest of this the franchise because this was just the, this was the stepping stone from uh, a good and a bad place I think yeah. unfortunately. But like it's it's so crucial to the plot and like I would say it's kind of like the main job of the Keyblade to seal the keyholes. Exactly. So I feel like there's there's more to the story here is all I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. So for number seven, the main thing I took away is he writes a sentence that uh, my people and I are all but prisoners of this tiny place, which echoes both Riku's thoughts and is very similar to one of Ansem's lines right before we fight him. Uh, Take a look at this tiny island. To the heart seeking freedom, this place is a prison surrounded by water. So... Yeah, Ansem has this idea that Hollow Bastion is too small of a world, so he has these ambitions of exploring, even though the concept of other worlds isn't really a thing, as we'll learn in a later report. So, like, I don't know why he would think this, and I also don't know why he would ascribe that that mindset to everyone at Hollow Bastion. (laughs) So, yeah, he's starting to paint a very selfish picture of basically my way is the only right way, which, you know, good good writing for villain. You can... Because what we know of Ansem is originally he was a... As uh, I think Aerith described him as, he was a um, he was a good guy basically. Like he was a well-respected ruler of Hollow Bastion and everyone looked up to him. But yeah, these reports... Mm -hmm kind of spell out his fall from grace, if you will, where he just gets seduced by the dark side, literally, so. Yeah. So, yeah, in answer report number eight is when he makes a heartless manufacturing machine, and then he he specifically says, oh, I should note the difference between these artificial and natural heartless. So from this point on, there's a distinction between the emblem heartless, which are the majority of the heartless we face, any heartless that actually have the heartless symbol on them. Uh, and then there's the pure blood heartless, which are the heartless that are just all darkness, basically. So your shadows, your dark sides, your invisibles, your dark balls, those are all pure bloodies. Yeah. The way I read it, it sounds like they're both created like the same way. <sighs> this report, or maybe another one, kind of implies that they're created in the same way. It's just that the emblem heartless are like like an emblem heartless will produce an emblem heartless basically and a pure blood will pr- produce a pure blood, but for all intents and purposes, they are the same. So I wrote a note as, so basically he just created a heartless designer breed. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically what I think. I say that because if I think anything else, my brain will in fact explode. But yeah, heartless, heartless kill and they just basically reproduce by killing. But it's, I can't think, can't think into it too much because our brains will just literally fry on the spot. But there are, there are a lot of different variations of Emblem Heartless, so my mind yep. drifts too, and I have to stop my mind from drifting into what went into the design of each Emblem Heartless. But at that point, it's it's very it gets very nitpicky, and I think you know mm-hmm. 
we're not our ancestors not supposed to be here playing God, being like, I gotta send these guys to Wonderland, or like, I'll base these guys off of that one time I fell in the jungle. Yeah, like, I I don't think he literally designs them. I think he just came up with a machine that kind of replicates how Heartless are created, and then I think from there, I think like the world shapes the Heartless. So very much how like Keyblades are formed, I think is kind of how Heartless come to be. Where like based on the world they spawn in, it'll kind of shape them. So like, and again, I think I, I think we've mentioned this before, but like in Kingdom Hearts two and the Land of Dragons, Mulan's world, we know for a fact that one of the Heartless that appears as a boss. It appears how it does, specifically based on the creature whose heart fell to darkness, basically. True. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if you, you know, look closer at it, I'm sure you could actually say, yes, well, there is a huge difference between Emblem and Pure Bloods. For now, I'm going with, basically, they're born under the same circumstances. The main thing that's different is just the Emblems. And, and also... This isn't relevant now, but, like, when you defeat them, Emblem Heartless release their hearts, whereas Pure Blood Heartless are just, they're pure darkness, so they will just return to darkness, basically. Um, but that's that's enough of that. Yeah, I'm starting to get a nosebleed, so. <laughs> uh, answer Report 9. Uh, special guest appearance from King Mickey. Uh, so we get a, a king who visits from another world, and he explains what gummy blocks are. So, yes, as you were just mentioning... Yep. Uh, the pieces of the meteor shower that fell and kind of combine to go, combine and form into new shapes, as Mickey explains. So we know that these are gummy pieces. So basically, gummy ships or gummy blocks are made from the same material as the world borders, which is how gummy ships are able to pass through the borders in the first place because they are the same material. But this begs the question once more of why mm. does King Mickey have a gummy ship and how does he know what gummy blocks are? Like, it, it, it makes it sound like he's like an expert, like he's been working with them for a really long time, even though they shouldn't have existed before this. <sighs> so what do you think? I think I think gummy blocks are just the thing that the Disney folk, I'll say Disney Town, Disney Castle. Disney Castle is actually accurate. So Disney Castle. Yeah. I'm in my head. My head cannon. I'm just gonna say that they've always known what gummy blocks are, and they because Chip and Dale have like a whole entire yeah. like, engineer workshop. Like they they haven't put this thing together in the past like ten minutes. It's been there for like quite some time. So I feel like gummy technology is a thing they've always had access to. I think these events that specifically like Mickey meeting Ansem, I think this takes place nine years before Kingdom Hearts one. So theoretically it could be enough time to like, you know, build up this whole garage as you're describing. So that could mm. fit. Could. It could. Cause otherwise like where would they get the gummy blocks before this? You know what I mean? That's true. God didn't think I'd contemplate the origin of the gummy blocks. <laughs> right. So one thing I'll say is I'm impressed that you know, Namura managed to make gummy blocks relatively, you know, plot important. <laughs> Damn you, Namura! Mm -hmm. So, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I think the simplest way to explain this is just Yen Sid told Mickey what the gummy blocks are. Because <laughs> he knows everything, apparently. Like, I imagine what happened was the world borders fall... 
uh, Yinsid and Mickey notice, hmm, there's all these weird blocks. And then Yinsid goes on like a 45-minute lecture about, oh, these are gummy blocks. When the gummy blocks touch, they'll combine into new forms to allow you to travel to new worlds. And Mickey's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Just give me the awesome rocket. <laughs> so we know Yinsid is in his... His tower exists in like a weird space time, though, doesn't it? Yeah, like it, it'll... It can travel between worlds, basically. I hate it. I'm, okay, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop thinking about it. I think my brain's really gonna die. But yeah. So, birth. <laughs> the only title that comes before this is Birth by Sleep, and I'm thinking of how they travel in Birth by Sleep. So, our trio use their yeah. keyblades to do interplanetary travel. So there are multiple ways of traveling without a gummy ship. One of which we know Mickey's used. Mm-hmm, the. The weird star thing, but mm -hmm. yeah. So he wouldn't be reliant on a gummy ship. So I'm, I'm just wondering, like, at what point did he start to rely on gummy ships, and when did he start like mass producing okay. them? Basically. <laughs> uh, now I'm coming to it, your la your line of thinking. There, maybe they're just like, oh, look at all these weird blocks. They go together. Hey, Chip and Dale, can you make? I just imagine now Mickey showing on, like, a makeshift gummy ship. Like, it's got one engine. It flies, yeah. like, incredibly crookedly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the bigger question for me is, why did he come to Hollow Bastion specifically? He was drawn to it. Yeah, I, I think that's the best bet of, like... It's vague enough to work. Yeah, like, one, that's, you know... The keyhole was opened, so yeah, I imagine he was able to track that mm, there's some sort of mysterious reading in this foreign world. But also, yeah, just wanted to go there to question, well, oh, gosh, why the heck did you do this? Are you plotting some sort of evil plot to bury the worlds in darkness? No, 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 ignore it, King Mickey. We don't want that now, would we? Huh? <laughs> but also interesting in this report is Mickey sort of recounts the tales of the Keyblade, which uh, King Triton gave us a little taste of. Yeah, he reiterates that uh, the tales of the Keyblade, some say that the wielder uh, saved the world, while others say he brought nothing but chaos. Yeah, I mean, this gets entirely retconned later. KH1 is very much the Keyblade. There is, there is no A Keyblade, it's always the Keyblade, because it's very much implied that there is one Keyblade to rule them all. Oh, ho, 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 I, I have some news on that later. <laughs> <sighs> but it's very funny knowing that Mickey trained to be a Keyblade Master, and then, you know, this, it's not retcon out of existence, but it's very funny because, again, there's like the Keyhole, or like not the Keyhole, but the Keyblade Wielder, and yep. like what the... I guess specifically, he also says, like, uh, I don't know, he makes it seem like a very vague, like, almost legendary object when Mickey can even materialize it in front of him and be like, this is what a Keyblade is. Ha ha. Yeah. But he also could have hid the fact that he knows how to wield a Keyblade and has a Keyblade, so. Yeah, like, it's, it's not clear if... Mickey specifically says, I have a Keyblade, or if he's just saying, hmm, I've heard of this tale of a Keyblade. For some reason, I imagine it's, I the, it's ladder. the ladder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Mickey's in the house. Okay. Yeah. So, number 10. I just pulled a quote that I thought was interesting, so I'll just read it now. <clears throat> I'll try to do my best uh, Billy Zane impression. Um, <laughs> Is the core of the world's heart the world of the heartless? I will pursue the answer there and become all-knowing. 
I shall seek out the wielder of the keyblade and the princesses. My body is too frail for such a journey, but I must do this. I will cast it off and plunge into the depths of darkness. And uh, all I wrote was, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> so I, I will mention this. This is the final answer report for the yep. base game. Yes. We got 11 through 13 and final mix. So this, as because uh, you were like, you were like, this escalated quickly. And I feel like as, as the fin- as the original finale to the Ansem Report, it does kind of hold true of like, I know everything now. Well, we, and also from a storytelling perspective, you don't know the time difference in these reports. Like they're not dated, obviously. Yep. The next one could have been years later. But it, also maybe it's the next day. He's like, you know what? Screw light. Darkness. Yeah. So this, this ends with basically what we know of Ansem. Like it picks up right where this report uh, ends off like we can assume yeah he just cast himself to darkness shortly after this so yeah it's potato sack yeah but it is interesting how he calls out the princesses because there was no mention of them earlier so exactly how does he know who (laughs) they are and why is he looking for them Mm -hmm. maybe in mickey's story of the keyblade there's like yeah there's like a subsection of like here are the princesses of art yeah, the wiki. <laughs> yeah, but but also at this point, well, we don't know when this, the converse. We know that sometime before Cage One is when Mickey and Ansem meet up. But yep, I'm trying to think. Like, you know, we know from just being present and AKA playing the series for 20 years after this that yep. there's like a it's some it's between a decade before KH1 happens when did this conversation happen i was like well would, would most of the princesses even be alive at that point but like if it's only a 10 year difference then like, yeah yeah they would be alive or maybe like the tale of the princesses is like something almost like passed down like maybe not like from from daughter to mother but like you know when one princess fades, another princess emerges. Well, that's what Kingdom Hearts 3 would imply, which I don't really like that, but we'll get into that much later. Yeah. So basically, yeah, at this point, he's just full in on the darkness. He's ready to cast away his body and everything. So he's a little, little cuckoo for cocoa buffs at this point. But um, yeah, we got three more bonus reports, which is when things nice. really start getting juicy. So... In Answer Part 11, he basically says that he thinks that the heart of the worlds are the way to accessing, like, the heartless world, basically, and by extension, I would imagine, Kingdom Hearts. So he thinks it's a good thing to do exactly what he did for the Hollow Bastion door, where he wants to open, he, like, wants to go to the worlds and gain access to their hearts, and he knows that the... the Keyblade wielder can seal the keyholes and prevent that. So to him, that's a bad thing. And I imagine exactly. what his plan is very much like uh, an old Fire Lord sows in an avatar. Like, I feel like he wants to find the Keyblade <laughs> wielder to kill them, basically. <laughs> yes. This is very much like we know the next avatar will be an airbender. Yeah. Let's <laughs> target all the air temples. Yep. Yeah. So he, um, he chooses a girl that he hypothesizes as a princess. And he thinks that she will lead him to the Keyblade wielder. So that's all part of his ploy to track down whoever ends up with the Keyblade. Although whoever the Keyblade wielder is, because there's only the Keyblade wielder. Mm-hmm. Who do we think the Who do you think the girl is? Good golly gosh! <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder 
If he wasn't sure who the Keyblade Wielder is, what the heck is he doing at the Destiny Islands at the beginning of the game? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying the fact that you were like, he's going around, he's going around slamming all these doors open kind of explains why <laughs> we see him um, when, you know, when Sora goes to the secret place and uh, Floating Potato Sack is right in front of the door. He's like, hey, I yeah. found it. I'm pretty sure this, you know, uh, I imagine like very much in Traverse Town. In, in second district before you met Donald and Goofy, very much like you go into one room, they come out of another room. Mm-hmm. It's very much like Ansem's like right behind Sora, like every step of the way as you like collect mushrooms and collect logs yeah. and Destiny Islands. <laughs> but he's like, mm, door's not over here. Mm-hmm. And then him and Sora just happen to go into the secret place at the same time. And he's like, aha! <laughs> yeah, totally. Maybe what he's been doing in the meantime was... Exactly what he did at Destiny Island is like going to worlds, opening the doors, and then that's, you know, help them fall to darkness, which then helps, you know, the Heartless and everything. So I guess that was just one of his stops on the way. But maybe he was, maybe he like put some sort of tracker on Kyrie, and that's how he knew, all right, at some point I should go check in on her, see what's going on with that there Keyblade. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, he's, he either knows where she's gone, or, or he is like actively tracking her at some point. There's some uh, existential crisis means we're not going to really get into because we both die right now. But yeah, every so often he's like, anything happened over here? Nope. I'm going to continue opening these doors. Yeah. So on to number 12. And this is when Mm -hmm. my brain shatters. Because again, you you (laughs) think you know, but you know nothing, Jon Snow. So yeah, there's just one quote that stuck out to me. And it is this. Uh, The world in which we live, the realm of darkness, the realm of light... And the world in between. Wherein lies true nirvana. And I guess what's confusing to me here is... Is he <laughs> is he saying that the world in which we live in is different from the realm of light? Because the way it's, like, framed, he goes, world in which we live, realm of darkness, mm, like... He's, like, yeah. listing them off as items? <laughs> yeah, because he mentions the world we live in, the realm of darkness, the realm of light, and the world in between. Which, you know, we talked about the end of the, end of the game in certain worlds or places exist in between both realms yep the way it's phrased uh i mean oh, from as i try to think in deep about this i always realize that it is japanese translated to english so it could mean it could be a translation thing but it's not necessarily yeah. as well like i'm not saying oh it's definitely that it could be a possibility i don't think it's a strong yeah that's a good possibility point. but a possibility that i will throw on the table but it i think it's just the phrasing because if we weren't in the realm of light and yeah <laughs> you can see my brain sputtering out as we're talking about it but yeah well it kind of paints this idea of you know the world we live in is just the world we live in the realm of darkness is a hell equivalent is how you could imagine it whereas the realm of light is like a heaven and then the world of in between i don't know like purgatory uh, so like you can like draw those sorts of parallels cuz it's like a very common trope i guess you could say but yeah from Basically, every game from this point on refers to the realm of light as that is the world we live in. Like, the realm of light is where... The regular world, yeah. Yeah, like 95% of where the games take place in. Yeah, I shouldn't think about too, 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 too much because I will throw KH1 as KH1. Yeah. And some phrasing. Come on, buddy. Yeah. Okay, last but not least, 
is number 13, where he basically outlines this idea of nobodies, which is what happens to the body that is left behind when a heart falls to darkness. And it goes much deeper, and I think it overcomplicates it. So he says, he basically says, like, oh, like, your body can exist here, but then when it disappears, like, maybe it appears in some other realm, I guess you could say. So he says, however, I'm certain that if yourself exists here, then by definition, the other cannot truly exist. And all this is just to say, it's just a cute way of saying that nobodies don't really exist. And that just never made sense to me. Like, I get, oh, we nobodies, we don't exist. But, like, you do exist. Like, you're you're literally right here in front of me. You're, he- you're right here kicking my ass. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, so it's just weird to me how he draws such a strict line here of saying, like, oh, well, if there's one of you in this realm, that even if there is another in the other realm, well, it still doesn't exist. So, like, I to me, what he's talking about is, like, dimensions. <laughs> like, sure, if there's one of you here, and we'll put it in marble terms, right? The 616 dimension or reality, whatever you say. Yeah. So, like, if there's a Peter Parker here, then whoever the Peter Parker is in the Ultimate Universe, like, that Peter Parker doesn't actually exist in this dimension. <laughs> but, like, the way they're describing, like, realms is, it's kind of like a reality sandwich. <laughs> Whereas dimensions are, like, true. parallel. Oh, God, now we're, like, getting into, like, quantum theory. Like, like <laughs> dimensions don't have overlap. So, like, yeah, if you are in one dimension, like, you aren't in another <laughs> But if it's, like, realms, like, just because you're in one realm doesn't mean you can't also exist in another because you can move in between realms. So, like... Very hard to do, but doable. Yeah, so many of the cast has been to, like, all three. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just this whole idea of, like, the nobodies, like, not existing never really drived with me. Like, it's just weird to say, especially because, you know, the way it's framed in Answer Report 13, like, it tries to say, like, this is, like, kind of crucial to the whole concept of nobodies like oh they don't exist yeah. when like really that doesn't actually have any bearing on like nobodies as characters and as plots it doesn't True. really yeah. amount to anything so it's just a weird thing to like make such a grand statement about exactly especially because i can't remember if it's like in a report i think it might be in a report in two but um there's the acronym neo which is apparently different from neo heartless but it's neo non-existent one and at one point, that was another way to refer to nobodies. So yeah, mm-hmm. if, if anything, it just makes it way more confusing. So <sighs> if a nobody falls down in a forest <laughs> and no one is around <laughs> to hear them expound about their feelings, did they really exist? <laughs> God. God, I can't. But uh, the concept of nobody's not really existing. So their bit, I should say their bit in Cage 2 is like, they don't have real feelings, which when we get to Cage 2 specifically, yep. I will... I will have th- I will have thoughts and feelings about that, mm-hmm. but this is kind of similar to that regard of like, do they even exist? And you know, we just really made the joke of like, am I am I am I the one hitting myself in the face right now, or am I actually being attacked by another person? Like, yeah, exactly. Over the course of the series, they make a very conscious effort of separating nobodies from their somebodies. Like, for example, mm-hmm. Axel is a different character than Lee, <laughs> so it's not like one takes the place of the other so yeah and to be fair you know these this is all the groundwork and then it gets changed up as the series progresses oh, for sure. yeah. that's true with like any franchise this can happen it's just 
happens to be very, very much prolific in KH1, because KH1, BKH1. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it for the report. Although, I forgot to mention one other interesting thing from Answer Report 8. There's a quote in there where Ansem writes, This may be a step toward creating a heart from nothing. And I will just leave that there and let you draw your own connections as to why that is significant for the rest of the series. But, yeah, that's it for the report. So while we're on the sort of metaphysical thinking of, like, the larger plot of the games and all the complicated lore and plot machinations, I thought it would be interesting for us to go through the Ultimania interview. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Which I've never read before, and uh, it was a trip. And, yes. Uh, I will let you explain where the heck this thing comes from. Yes. So, yeah, I'm also not 100%... Sure, but basically, an Ultimania is kind of like a strategy guide slash collector's edition slash just like memorabilia piece that usually comes out for every Kingdom Hearts game. I think Final Fantasy might do something similar, actually, but it's basically just like I think like it'll have like concept art because like they're really long, like they go over four hundred pages, so it's just like everything you would want to know about Kingdom Hearts, basically. But, like, a behind-the-scenes, but for, but but in book form. Yeah, like, it kind of just goes into, like, the making of the game, just, like, more in-depth of, like, you know, character profiles and whatnot, and just, like, like I said, it's kind of like a strategy guide in terms of just, like, all the information it gives, but, like, way more in-depth. But they've only ever come out in Japan, which is why I'm, like, not really sure what they are exactly. Although there is in this, in June, so next month or... Actually, this month, by the time this airs, probably. Um, There is a Kingdom Hearts Ultimania releasing in the U.S., which is kind of a misnomer, because I'm almost sure it's not, like, an actual Ultimania, like any of the ones that have been published before. I think it's going to be, like, an Ultimania for the series as a whole, but I think it will be kind of, like, this is what an Ultimania for, like, individual games looks like, in terms of, like, the type of content you'll see. While you've been doing this, I've been doing my... My esteemed researcher position and been kind of figuring out what the Ultimanias are and basically everything to back up Captain is saying right now. Yep. So the Ultimanias, they are just Japanese, like we said, they're ja- Japanese only informational books released about the KH games. And you said, yep, they're exactly, they're a strategy guide, but more in depth. Yeah. It contains like artwork, like it probably, it's probably key arts, probably a lot of like testing. Like, yeah, totally. Here, here's where we thought about this thing, and you know, yada yada. Things that left get left in the cutting room floor. Interviews with the staff and the voice actors, and kind of clarification. I mean, we're about to really delve into a Nomura interview for the Ultimania, but yep. the KH series Memorial Ultimania, which for Japan was 2014, it was after the release of DDD. Huh. And that's the one that we're getting translated into English uh, this year. Oh, okay. June 22nd, to be exact. So, actually, by the time this airs, it'll be maybe a week and a half. Yeah. So, wait, it, it doesn't it doesn't have anything on Kingdom Hearts 3? It does not have anything on Kingdom Hearts oh, 3. Oh, that's, that's they, kind of unfortunate. Unless they revise it, it'll be KH through, D, through DDD. Okay, but, um... Yeah, like, the the most interesting parts of them are the Nomura interviews at the end, where he'll just, you know, explain super plot-critical details that aren't actually in the game. So they're kind of, like, in 
like an epilogue of sorts or like a like a footnote sections for each game or like yeah if you want the whole story literally like you have to read these interviews <laughs> exactly yeah not so much in kingdom hearts one i noticed um the interview but like definitely in later games like and Ultimania is kind of like, here's here's the next major story drop, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a wild ride. Yeah, for the Kingdom Hearts 1 interview, I took down a few notes of what was interesting. But um, I left a link, or we're going to leave a link in the description of this episode for the full interview. Definitely check it out. Super interesting. But... Keep in mind, these are translated from Japanese, so some things won't quite make sense, or, you know, there'll be, like, notes from the translator, so just keeping that yeah. in mind. And I, in case we didn't mention earlier, there will also be a link to the Ansem reports, because we didn't read the Ansem reports verbatim. Yeah, like, if you if you don't have them all, we'll link to them. But yeah, let's just get into it. I'll kind of go through these some of, the, some of these quickly, because... There's not too much to say about them. So right off the bat, we've learned that originally there were 20 worlds planned for Kingdom Hearts, uh, which included original worlds like Traverse Town and Hall of Bastion. But naturally, that number got cut during development. So we ended up like 13 worlds in total, counting Destiny Islands. So yeah, it sounds like during the initial phases, there was like almost twice as many plan so that's just mm-hmm. cool to know makes you wonder like which ones were considered um like we were mentioning at the start of this i'm i feel confident saying that jungle book was probably one of those because i feel like i've also read interviews where <laughs> nomura has said that he was concerned jungle book but it just didn't make sense to have jungle book in the same the same game as deep jungle or maybe he was saying that about yeah. pride lands but it was probably Jungle Book. He was probably thinking of Jungle Book at one point. <laughs> yeah. Along with uh, Pride Lands. But then he realized, it's too many exactly. jungles. It's jungle out there. Too many j- too many jungles. Yeah. And then he goes on to explain a little bit of... Finally, we get a little bit of insight of how worlds are chosen. So he says, well, I guess the first priority is its popularity. I chose in the order of how well known it was. Then I choose by figuring out if there are characters that are fun to move around and in terms of staging, if there were places that were interesting to be a part in. So all that to say, Sword in the Stone will never be in Kingdom Hearts. (laughs) Oh no! Sword in the Stone is not a popular movie. The characters aren't interesting. <laughs> and there aren't interesting places to be in. I'm just saying. Uh, I guess I guess also it's like a, re- a reminder, because we're going through this. These are also like almost 20-year-old quotes. These like oh, yeah, for sure. Ago, so Like, I can already think of multiple worlds since then that have broken these rules. <laughs> exactly. So it'll be, in- but I think it'll be more interesting to see the Nomura interview at the end of each game once we finish it. To yeah. be like, you know, what was the process for this game as opposed to the following game? And, you know, yeah, see totally. What, I think to see what holds true and to see what falls through through the cracks. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine to this day still, like, it's a good baseline. Like, I think every world in Kingdom Hearts 3 definitely checks off these qualifications. So, yeah, like, basically, I- I've compared them to Sakurai before with picking Smash characters, but, like, does the world have something unique to offer, and do people care about it, is how I read it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what goes into a good KH world, so... Yeah, I think that's good. Beyond that, he goes a little bit into detail about some Final Fantasy characters. Uh, so he kind of explained that the reason why Squall from Final Fantasy VIII, the reason why his name was changed to just Leon, was so it could be a surprise when you meet him. Which I found very interesting, yeah. So, like, Mickey references Leon in the letter, but he, like, explained, like, well, if me- Mickey just said, oh, go meet Squall, 
in Traverse Town, like, anyone who knows who Squall is would know, like, oh, we're going to go meet the Final Fantasy VIII protagonist. So I guess he wanted it to be a surprise of, like, ooh, who is this? We're going to meet Gunblade, man. Woohoo! It's like, yeah. Because this, this is, this came out after 10, so. Yep. I mean, 8 would have been, re- 8 would have been still relevant. But yep. yeah. And this went to development. At, well, I mean, you were going to get into it a little bit, but this came in development after Nomura finished his work on 8, so. That yep. makes a little sense. So he also talked about Cloud, and he was being a little cagey about um, the interviewer asked the question of like, oh, who was Cloud looking for? Because in Olympus Coliseum, he mentions, I'm looking for someone. And mm-hmm. Moore just said that he'd rather leave it up to fan opinion. So it's natural to see him Aerith, but just because, you know, Cloud is a fan favorite, and I'm sure there are many different interpretations you could take. I, he probably just wants let to let people imagine whatever fits their personal headcanon, just because it's not super important to the plot. He's looking for Barrett, let's be real. He's yeah. Like, After that scene in the Golden Saucer? Oh, mm. Nelly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I think it makes sense with the with the Cloud, Tifa, and Aerith love triangle, if you want to even call it that. Yep. Like, it's very much like, mm, I won't tell. Or it's like, it's it's even one of the things, I guess from a, from a developer standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, you don't need to give a definitive. You can, exactly. You know, everything doesn't need to be like, like to be on the nose. Everything doesn't need to be lock and key at the end of the day. Yep. They're 100%. Like just because there is a single plot or a single, like even very tiny thread that is left to the unknown doesn't mean story bad, not complete. Yep. Totally. So I feel like that leans in this direction. Yeah. So after that, he talked a little bit about getting Utada on for the theme song. Uh, thank God. So most of the team thought he was crazy for thinking that she would ever work with them. But Namor, the madman, basically multiple times for this interview, he just reiterates this idea of, you know, like, well, it's not impossible unless you try it or like, you know, what's the harm in trying? <laughs> like, usually I'll just try something and then if I fail, I'll stop. But otherwise, like, you never know what will happen, which very wise words to live by. And then, yeah, that's that's how we got all of you taught a song in Kingdom Hearts, and the series would definitely not be the same without them, so... I think so, definitely. It's very funny, like, Nomura is the... And Nomura is the persona of you miss 100% of the shots you yeah. don't take. I, was, <laughs> I, I feel like that has to be, like, on his, like, in his cubicle or in his office. Oh, absolutely. posted somewhere. He's like... <laughs> and he mentions it, uh, I think, in part one. But it's not a not, not worthy part, but he says something like, I'll hardly think, uh, yeah, the exact quote is, yep. I hardly think this is impossible, so I'll quit. He's always like, but why not try for this? Exactly, and yeah. <laughs> look, if it works, if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. Obviously. And then, yeah, he says that, you know, once they reached out and started negotiations, it was actually pretty easy. Because she likes games, and she likes Disney, and then he showed her, like, an early build of the game, and she really liked it, and there she wrote go. the song. So, yeah, moving on. Apparently, according to Nomura, Sora, Riku, and Kairi are considered Disney characters. So, you know, for anyone who wants Sora and Smash, that's probably why you're not getting them. <laughs> that good old Disney, well, I should say modern Disney of RRP, RIPs are special children. Yeah, but it's, like, weird because he's, like, in this weird prison where, like, obviously Disney will never do anything with Sora outside of Kingdom Hearts, so it's, like, he might as well just be a square character, so I wonder if he would answer that question differently today. Because, you know, like, does that also mean, like, the Organization 13 are all Disney characters? (laughs) Yes! 
A hundred percent. So I feel like we were talking about this and it's a... Uh, oh, the, the dumb joke I was going to make is we're more likely to see Sora in Fortnite. Oh, seriously. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the world we live in. Yeah. He said that he wanted to illustrate bonds throughout the story. So like bonds between people, which very much uh, the theme of Kingdom Hearts 1. So job succeeded. And he said that the game story was originally going to be much simpler, and it was even going to end after defeating Maleficent. So everything with Ansem, like, originally, like, that wasn't part of the story. But then he realized to appeal to, like, the Final Fantasy base, like, it needed a more in-depth plot. So he added more of the original stuff. Mm. I feel like the original sp- parts are the more interesting of everything. Like, oh, for sure. Maleficent's League of Villains like plot line never feels it never feels important it's it feels like more of an obstacle than a goal yeah oh and also because there's no there's no connection there's no animosity between maleficent and sora's gang it's not like we're yeah. doing this because we have to stop maleficent it's like she's always just in the way she's t- she's the team rocket she is literally the team rocket of kingdom hearts Yep. So this next one's a real doozy. So <laughs> he confirms. So the interviewer asks something about like, oh, well, like since Ansem sent out Kyrie to find a Keyblade wielder, does that mean that there's only one Keyblade? Or is it possible that she could have ended up somewhere else, you know, with another Keyblade wielder? And yeah, Nomura confirms that other Keyblade masters do exist. And he says that it's just a coincidence that Kyrie ended up on Destiny Islands. Only a coincidence. So apparently, yeah, uh, in Kingdom Hearts 1, multiple Keyblades were a thing. And I think the shift is, specifically with Final Mix, is when this idea of multiple Keyblade builders started, because Ultimania would have also come out um, after Final Mix, I believe. It's, and you can definitely tell that with Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix also, is like, that's when it's like the weird in-between of like, planting the seeds for the future. So I think in the original game, it was just a single Keyblade, but then when he realized, hmm, maybe I should make a sequel of this, that's when he leaned more into the idea of, like, well, no, there are multiple Keyblade users. So I think he, like, answered this question kind of specifically to reinforce that sort of shift. Like, well, no, there are multiple. And I, I think he's trying to, like, play it off like that's what he meant the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> and similar on that note, uh, so this is really interesting to me. So, they're talking about the scene on Destiny Islands when Riku and Sora are swallowed by the darkness. So, apparently, <sighs> that darkness that appears is literally Riku's darkness. <laughs> it's the darkness in his heart as opposed to just the world. Yes, the exactly. So, it came specifically from Riku. So, when Sora is swallowed by it, it's kind of like he's swallowed into Riku's heart. <laughs> and then... The light that appears right before the Keyblade is kind of like the last sort of glimmer of Riku's light. So it's literally, you know, Mm -hmm. the light at the end of the deepest darkness. That light was kind of what drew the Keyblade to Riku. But because Sora had the same qualifications of Keyblade Master, he was basically able to yoink the Keyblade. (sighs) I'm going to ignore all of that. (laughs) So yeah, he elaborates that the Keyblade appeared because Riku is the one who called it. So I guess on some level, Riku summoned the Keyblade, but then Sora was able to take it because, you know, he had the makings. Whereas I always just assumed 
it appear to Sora in its time of need, but apparently it was it was on its way to Riku, but then it got rerouted. And it's literally the jealous girlfriend meme. <laughs> yes. I think that's a great summary. That's why I always I always thought of like the keyblade's <laughs> on its way to Riku, but he's like halfway through the darkness keyblade's like, eh, what mm-hmm. about this kid though? He's yep. got the qualifications. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I said, like the plot details in this interview are more just elaborating on things that happen in the game, whereas in later it's more like him elaborating on things that will then lead kind of like tease the plot of future games so it's just interesting like the things he chooses to kind of explain here okay so this one's another doozy so he explains that Kyrie's grandma's story about you know the children of the light in the original worlds he says that that is a fairy tale and not history and that it only overlaps with what really happens to a certain extent so that's not literally what happened, which is really interesting with all the UX shenanigans and Dark Road, because I know that that's... Red, red, con, red, con, yeah. red, con, So, yeah, that was really interesting, because I always just assumed, like, that's literally what happened. But I guess, thinking of it as a fairy tale that's loosely based on history. Yes, back in 2003, 2004, when this book was coming out, I can very... This turned into the little more, I was like, ha, 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 but what if? Exactly. I always saw it as a half and half as well. Like something that's got roots in reality, but is more of like spoken to children as like a story to entertain them. Yeah. But it, it explains like some of the parts are it, like feel like relative. Like, I don't know. It's, it's very it's very much. It could be either. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. So moving on. <sighs> yes, please. So when the gangs in Travis Town and Pluto gets a little stirred up and then he runs to Sora. Apparently he wasn't alerted by Sora. Apparently he perked up because he felt Mickey's presence. And then he goes yeah. on to say that Pluto actually met Mickey at one point. <laughs> Which would explain how he has the letter at the very end of the game. But yeah, apparently Mickey was just at Traverse Town at one point, which Makes sense, because Traverse Town is in the world in between, and I know that there are, like, certain pockets between the Realm of Darkness and the Realm of In-Between, which would explain why Mickey was able to contact Pluto. But, like, again, this is, like, this is a really big detail to just kind of leave off on the side. <laughs> yeah, I... It, this might be in a cutscene, maybe in 0.2? It might be talked about or shown much later in the series i think it can't be coded it might be coded i think it might be coded because i know there's a scene of mickey in travis town and i think it's from coded and it's in this weird like half outfit i think it's like it's chain of memories outfit yeah the weird the 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 one we only see yeah (laughs) in chain of memories yep it's it's wild mickey and pluto just had their own little sub adventure that we'll never know about basically Exactly. And so, yeah, I think Mickey, I think Mickey goes into a corridor of darkness in that hallway where Sora goes. So literally in yep. the time of Pluto being like, Duh! and then running there, Mickey says, peace out. And Sora just drops in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you're, you look like my dad, but you're not really my dad. Yeah. You have the same color scheme. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so then he has a whole spiel about Ansem and Riku and their body sharing. And I'll just, I'll just. Yeah, this was copy-pasted <laughs> verbatim, so I'll just read it. Uh, Ansem in the end lost his body. That means that you can't really say that the Ansem that appears in the end is Ansem's true body. 
It's a form that he took on after borrowing Riku's body, saying that the existence of the road man in the beginning is suspicious. There are several ways of interpreting it. Well, setting aside whether I'm doing that or not, I've been thinking about several ideas for the development after that. Uh, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> neither do I think he's just, just trying to be so ambiguous about Ansem's original form. Yep. Which we know 20 something, 15 plus years later, is they just basically said, oh, this is Ansem Seeker of Darkness, basically. He got, he got no body. Yeah, I think it's his way of explaining, one, the Ansem you fight and the robot figure are technically, like, separate beings. And two, you didn't really defeat Ansem because this wasn't really his body, so he'll probably show up again. That's my uh, interpretation. I think they, I I would say they are the same. It's weird, because I think they're the same, but not the same. Yep. Like, Floating Potato Sack is... Is, An- is Ansem Seeker of Darkness, and then he's like, ooh, gonna squiggle into that Riku body. Hopefully, I, I haven't worn a body in many years. Hopefully, I fit into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Because we, t- we talked about my trying to retain the fact that his Billy Zane form, as I'll call it, mm-hmm. is him just getting into Riku's body and then yep. uh, jumping into a transmogrification machine of darkness and being like, all right, taller, tanner, abs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I think it's just a way of keeping Potato Sack open-ended. Yeah, like, he he kind of says at the end, like, mm, I'm not really sure what I want to do with that yet. <laughs> exactly. Turns out it's just harmless. <clears throat> yeah. So, just a couple more little notes I took. Uh, this one, thankfully, is much simpler. Uh, he just explains how he designed the Disney characters. So, he said... The way I kind of interpret it is he would sketch the Disney characters, like he'd do the first pass, and then he'd send it over to a Disney artist so that they would actually finalize it for, like, you know, being on model and everything, and then they send it to him, and by that point it would be pretty close to final, but he'd just add a few final touch-ups. But he did specify that for the Halloween Town versions of Tall and Goofy, he did complete those from beginning. Like, I think it was, like, all him is what he was saying, so... That's just an interesting note, because, yeah, like, they do they do all look like actual Disney artwork. Especially when you look at, like, mm-hmm. like the actual artwork, like the concept art, not, like, the in-game models, so. Yeah. Interesting behind-the-scenes peek. Well, it's, it's funny, because I, I think when we dropped in H-Town, we talked about, like, because Donald's got, like, a weird missing mid, like, torso, basically. I think we yep. made the joke, like, who at, who at Disney approved this? Yeah, exactly. And it turns out, <laughs> it turns out nobody! Yeah. Well, they approved it, but they did they had no part yeah, in no, it. <laughs> yeah, the Disney artist didn't go, didn't take Nomura's homework and be like, alright, let's correct this. Exactly. So, yeah, and then he ends with this, a little tease. So he says that the words that appear in the opening, which I assume are... I've been having these weird thoughts lately. Like, is any of this for real? Or not? Uh, He says those weird words were actually words that an actual character was meant to say during the ending. Uh, Please enjoy speculating who was supposed to speak those lines. (sighs) Bow. We have some insight on that now, because in the Kingdom Hearts 3 ending, those words are repeated. Or I guess I should say the Remind ending. So, maybe, maybe Nomura had more of this planned out than we thought. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. But, um, in terms of, like, actual Kingdom Hearts 1 characters... (sighs) I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't have any good guess. Like, maybe Kyrie. Uh, I would say Sora, but that's kind of boring since he's the one who says it in the actual opening. So, like, maybe exactly. Kyrie, Because uh, maybe that would give her character some more interesting business of, like, you know, she has these doubts after everything she's been through. Hey, give Kyrie something to do, please. Pretty much, yeah. So, I like to imagine as Kyrie. Yeah, I think it has to be. It has to be one of the original characters. It has to be one of one of the. Well, yeah, I'll say the boys. Kari's not a boy, but I think it would be one of them. Yep. Maybe a half Final Fantasy character, but I think it would be one of the three. Mm-hmm. Maybe Ansem. If there's if, if there was like an ambiguous like Ansem's not dead ending, mm-hmm. potentially that could also be. But if I had without thinking into it way too much, I think Kyrie, like, because she literally lands on. You know, she's locked in Destiny Islands. Her friends are nowhere to be found. She's almost kind of stranded. And Yeah, and I think... <sighs> so this would have taken place during the ending. So I imagine it would be like something like after her and uh, Sora were reunited. And I'm just thinking about it. Like, she's definitely the most pensive character in Kingdom Hearts 1. Where, like, she's, like, the most... I guess you could say moody. Like, I'm thinking specifically of the scene on the dock with her and Sora. Where, like, you know, she's more quiet and she's more, like kind of questioning things already of like mm-hmm. she just gives off a more thoughtful attitude than definitely Sora and Riku Riku's more brooding than actively like wondering about things like he's more definitely he's like more like I'd rather do something about it than think about it Riku's very yeah he's a I I, I, I huge mood for myself because I'm the same way of like I could sit here for five minutes thinking about what I need to do or I can think about what's the best way to go about this and then just be like, screw it, let's try that and see if it works. Yeah. Yeah, like I feel like in most of Kyrie's scenes, like she'll she'll have like a line or two where she's more reflective. So yeah, I think it Definitely. makes the most sense for her she, to ask that type of question. The, uh, because uh, Riku and Sora share one brain cell, Kyrie is literally the brains of the it's... operation. So yeah, that wraps it for the Ultimania. As I mentioned, yeah. uh, the full link is in the description, so go chickity check it out. Yeah, I did realize as I was going through it that uh, the bottom of the... So there's four parts to it. The bottom of the first part mm. has the correct links. The others... So you can't go from like one to two to three. Yeah, that, that so was a little like, annoying. So yeah, keep going back to the first one and then click from there. Exactly. You'll and figure it out. Actually, very, very quickly, because as we were talking about Kyrie, because I read this this morning to refresh myself, it kind of jumped in my head. He, uh, there's a line where the princesses say they'll go back to their respective worlds once the walls throw up, which kind of does explain how Kyrie gets yeeted back to Destiny Islands in the ending. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we were asking, like, well, is it because, like, did everyone in Traverse Town basically go through this? And, yeah, I think that, I think that makes the most sense. And also, he, like, exactly. in that same passage, he explained, like, oh, she goes back to Destiny Islands instead of Hollow Bastion because... She was taken from Destiny Islands during the invasion. So it's kind of like Correct. an Avengers Endgame where everyone <laughs> was rematerialized where they were first snapped. <laughs> exactly. Like, I feel like it's uh, it's it's pulling the reset button. Yeah. So, yeah, because all because literally all the other worlds are forming like worlds we know like we're going to see soon, like the Pride Lands are coming back. Yep. Uh, Land of Dragons is coming back, so everyone's just kind of being, uh, everyone's being snapped back into existence. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that about does it for this here episode. So, thanks so much yeah. for listening. And then next episode, we, we've, we've made it. 
It is the, the conclusion to the Kingdom Hearts 1 saga. Episode 20 will be our final discussion on the first game. And it'll basically just kind of be like a final thoughts episode and just a discussion of the game as a whole. So it'll, it'll be pretty off the cuff, just kind of summarizing our thoughts of it as a game, as a story, and anything that, you know, we want to cover a little bit more that we either haven't discussed in previous episodes, we just want to elaborate on. So keep an ear out for our final thoughts on the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a lot of food for thought this episode on all these... Details from Ultimania and the answer report. So if you have any thoughts on those, why don't you uh, shout us out with an email? I, going back through the recordings, I realize we haven't been plugging that uh, during the actual episode. Oh, let's plug that email. Yeah. yeah. You can reach out to us with any of your questions or interpretations or fan theories at khbhpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, link is in the description along with the mm-hmm. references to said documents. Yes, please, because we are only two idiots. We want to hear from more. Yeah, no, this is this definitely requires a group effort in terms of sorting through all this. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for listening. I've been Kevin. I'm sometimes Marshall. And this has been Kingdom Hearts by Hearts. To the gummy ship and away. One Meow. last stop, baby. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.